Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast it is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps will you take to get there? And I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 63. I'm so glad that you are here. We have so many new listeners every single week, and if that is you, I want to welcome you to the show. Welcome to the room. I'm glad you're here. And for many of you, you've been listening all along, and thank you for doing that. And for everybody, if you haven't yet subscribed yet, I invite you to do so, especially if you like this episode. I don't want you to miss a one. Also, make sure you follow us on Instagram at I Dare You Pod. Cool community starting there, and we share exclusive content you won't get anywhere else, including video snippets of this interview. Now, our guest this week, you're going to love her. She is Pai Chong Chitnant. She is the creator and host of Pai Lin's Kitchen, a popular cooking channel on YouTube with over 1.8 million subscribers. And she takes such a cool approach, an educational approach to Thai cuisine. She's also an author, best-selling author, brand new book called Sabai, which means the state of being where you're at ease and comfortable and relaxed. And I think that'll come through in this interview. She's so engaging. We cover so many topics related to, yes, cooking, but also business and strategy and entrepreneurship. Fascinating interview, and I can't wait for you to meet her. So what can you expect to learn from this episode? Well, calling all entrepreneurs and content creators, this episode is for you. Buckle up. Second, you're going to learn how a niche, something that doesn't seem very large or significant or mass market, how that niche can lead to a whole lot of success. So now that you know a little about Pi and her background, I say let's get this interview started. She's here. Episode 63 is ready. Here, everyone, is Pi Chongchitnant. Pai, welcome to the podcast. It's really good having you here. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. All right. Well, I've had some technology issues, so I think this is going to be, if, when we get through this interview, it's going to be so worth it. So thanks for hanging on with me. Pai, um, you've done a lot. And I, how do you, you heard my introduction of you. How do you define yourself? Are you, do you consider yourself a content creator, a chef, an author, which we'll talk about? Who are you? Um. I think I'm a little bit of both. I'm a chef, a content creator, and then I'll add another word into that, an educator. Ah. I think is above and beyond I'm an educator because that's the purpose of everything that I do is to educate people, help them cook better. Um, and the content creator part is just the medium that I use to to convey that education. And the chef part is just my expertise, right? So it's all, it's all a, a part they're all important parts of what I do. And so would you say, though, that that desire to educate, was that the driving force behind you getting out of your comfort zone and, and going into some different directions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I've always been a, a teacher at heart. Even when I was a kid, I loved tutoring my friends who were struggling in class. I took up jobs as a piano teacher. I, you know, I've always really loved to explain things to people. And from a very young age, I know I noticed that I was good at it. Like I noticed yeah. that when my friend was having issues with classwork, I was able to explain things in a way that they could understand that they couldn't understand previously in class. So I'd always known that about me. And so when it came to Thai cooking, which a lot of people find mysterious and they don't understand it, a lot of people tell me that you explain it in such a way that finally made sense. Mm. So, so I think being a teacher at heart has always been the drive. That's cool. Well, where did your, let's go back in time a bit. Where did you discover your passion for cooking? Where did all this begin for you? 
For as long as I can remember, I was born and raised in Thailand. And ever since I was a kid, um, I would just find myself hanging out in the kitchen when cooking was going on. I was just naturally drawn towards whatever was happening. I was interested. I asked to help. I was allowed to help in whatever way I could. I couldn't tell you how old I was. It was as as young as it was sensible. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then when I was old enough to cook my own dishes, I started as maybe 13, 12, 13 years old. I was cooking whole dishes on my own. Um, and then it just never stopped. It's always been something that really, really fascinated me. Yeah. So the the evolution then, when, when did you come to the, uh, North America or the United States? You grew up in Thailand. Yep. When I grew it, up when... in Thailand. And then I finished high school in Thailand. And ah. then I came to Canada. That was my first exit out of the country. Um, so I was 19 then for university. So I came to Canada. I studied nutritional sciences here. And then... And I only studied nutritional sciences because it was the only major that was food related that was <laughs> offered at the university. Yeah. Um, and then once I was done with that, I didn't end up working in nutrition at all. I ended up working in the kitchen right away because my true love was cooking. Sure, like it's good to know whether food is good for you, but really I wanted to cook it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then I decided to pursue cooking further. So I went to culinary school. And then for that, I decided to move to San Francisco because I heard that San Francisco was a good food city. That's and what I, I wanted heard, to yeah. Make, yeah, and I wanted to make sure that my food education wasn't limited to just what was happening in school, that outside was as much an education as was inside. Wow, what a journey. How, how did the, the nutritional science degree, how, how is, has that helped you or is kind of playing a role in your role to educate people in your YouTube channel, which has close to 2 million subscribers? We'll get into that. But how is nutritional science helping with that education? It has helped tremendously. I, I really have an advantage because a part yeah. of nutritional science is food science, right? Like understanding the science of food in general. So having an understand of fats and protein and carbs and sugar and how that plays a role, not just in your body, but just outside in the world as well, really helps um First of all, really helps me be a better cook, but also really helps me answer questions because people will ask questions about, well, you know, I've got, I'm diabetic. Like, how can I modify your dishes? Or like, oh, wow. I'm on this diet and that diet. So it has really helped me help people because I feel more confident in giving them advice or suggestions when they've got health concerns. Wow. Well, Pai, I've heard interviews with you about how you've talked about passion or this mission to educate people is really a driving force for you. And there's so much confusion and misinformation out there on the internet right now, everywhere. What do you think? What's the biggest misconception that people are getting confused about as it relates to food and nutrition? What do you think? I think there's so much misinformation because a lot of people are trying to sell something. And when they're trying to sell a product, they've got to hype it. They've got to, you know, they've got to make it sensational. And so they go to extremes and say, well, this food is really bad for you. And you, therefore you should completely avoid it. And then you should eat this food instead. And, and, and so I think because people are trying to make money off of nutrition advice, they go to such extremes. So I think as a rule of thumb, like if anyone is giving absolute extreme advice on nutrition, that is a big red flag. 
If anyone is not referencing any medical research, that is a huge red flag. If anyone is trying to sell you a product, um, that doesn't mean that they're not being truthful, but that's cause for you to stop and double check their sources, right? So the new people now, like who are giving out nutrition advice that I follow, I make sure that they're the kind of people who are always referencing real studies, real research and giving sensible advice and not sensationalized. Nothing should be sensationalized, right? And that's, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, those are wise words. And I think today, especially, we have to be wise consumers of information and be really discerning. And I think you're, the way you set it up is a really, really good way to think about it. All right. So now, holy smokes, 1.75 million YouTube subscribers on Pylin's Kitchen. My goodness. Well, we're all creating content in some way, shape, or form in today's social media world. What is the secret and behind creating that type of growth and loyalty? Pi, tell us about this. For me, it's been slow and steady um, consistency. So, you know, there are a lot of people who just grow to a million out of nowhere overnight and all of this stuff. But my growth has been steady and consistent. And I think um, a part of that is making sure that I provide quality content and not, and never, I rarely just jump on trends, you know, like I rarely do things that are fast and trendy and like, oh, this thing is popular now let's jump on it. I rarely do that. I stick to like the core useful information that I think people are going to find useful even 10 years from now. And and consistency is really important. Um, I used to post once a week, even more than that sometimes, but seasons of life has changed. I've become a mom. So now I post once every two weeks. You can do, you can post whatever makes sense for your life, but be consistent about it. If it's once a month, it's once a month. People learn to expect that from you. But if you try to like do once a week and then you burn out and then you disappear for six months, you know, people are going to be like, oh, she's done. She's not coming back. And then you're coming back. You've lost a bunch of people. So I think consistency and and making sure that you're doing something that's sustainable for your life, that's very important. And also creating the kind of content that you're, you actually love creating. This is a reason why I don't go after fads is because if I go after fads, I'm not really posting about things I want to post about. And right. if you keep if you don't post things that you're actually passionate about, you're going to be tired and and burnt out really quickly. And then that consistency is going to start to fail because you, you're not into it anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, a great, great insight. Uh, for everyone listening, creating content, that's a good self-assessment. When you're looking to create content, how much of it is driven from within and true authenticity, something you really feel passionate about. Mm-hmm. Because, Pi, you're the one doing it uh, very, very well. When I watch you and your videos, you can just tell it's just part of who you are and this mission of educating others. You can just tell that you're in that zone, but it's not its not something you're putting on. It's just something that, that you are doing. And give us your advice on how to do that, because I think a lot of us, we may be trying to create content, and then the fear factor takes over, and something gets in our way in a lot of ways. Give us some advice. What do you think? I think people are are, are afraid afraid of the camera, so to speak, because they're 
they're they're doing it for the views for example they're oh. they they feel like they have so much at stake right they're putting out this information and what if people don't like it how many views is this going to get and and you're tying the content to the numbers that are coming in afterwards that makes that that drives up anxiety right because it's like oh how many people how are people going to respond um but if you sort of treat content creation like a conversation you're having with friends like somebody just asks you about something that you know about and you have something useful to share and you think about it in that way and you're not like getting so worked up over how many views am I, am I going to get on this video then it becomes more about the content so I think you know when I first started on YouTube there were no such things as YouTubers. That was not a word that existed. <laughs> I started in 2009. You, oh my couldn't, you couldn't become a YouTuber. You couldn't make a living on YouTube. So I started my YouTube video purely because I wanted to. This was something that um, I was passionate about. I always wanted to have a cooking show. And so I thought, oh, YouTube is a really great way of, of, of doing that without having to be discovered by some TV producer, right? Right. So I started that. But because there were no stakes tied to it, I was comfortable to do whatever I wanted to do. But in today's day and age, people want to create content and they they want it to give them something back. They want it to make them a living. They want it to give them the views and the fame and all this. And you're putting so much pressure on your art and 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 you're you're losing that connection between why you are doing this in the first place, mm. right? And so, so I think if you're really if you're really giving out content in service of others and in service of your own passion, you will not be so nervous. You will not be so like, oh, what what should I do? What should I say? And you'll just be natural. You can just be yourself. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. You mentioned something there about when you started your YouTube channel. But then I'm going, I listened to an interview with you and you were talking about that moment when you, you knew, or you thought you wanted to be like a food network type star and to follow mm -hmm. that path. Yeah. And then you pulled back on that. Tell us about that and how you pivoted with that. And what did you learn through the process? So I started, the reason I wanted to have a cooking show was because I saw people on TV having cooking shows. Right. And I was really inspired by that. And I was like, that looks like such great fun. That is what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and so, so that, but at the time, that was the only way you can have a cooking show was to be on TV. You couldn't have a cooking show anywhere else, right? Yeah. So, so I started to sort of not really pursue that because I didn't think it was super realistic to try to get on TV. Um, but when YouTube became a thing that was possible, I was like, oh, well, this is the way for me to have a cooking show. Um, and maybe one day someone will discover me for television. Yeah. And, you know, I was very naive. I did not realize how being a person of color was going to really work against me to be mm. on TV. Um, and I just didn't even realize how difficult it is for anyone of color or not could be on TV. Or I just thought that like, if I'm good enough, somebody will notice. Um, but then as I was doing YouTube and the YouTube following started, I was really enjoying it. And then actually someone did ask me to be on TV. So I ended up hosting a TV series in Canada um, for a, a TV show called One World Kitchen. 
And so I did that and that was really great fun. But after doing that, I realized YouTube is where I really want to be because I have all the control. When you're on TV, you're performing for somebody else's show. You're performing for somebody else's network. They have, you know, they have their own ideas about what the show needs to be like. And you've got to cater to the masses because that's the whole point of TV. TV wants to cater to the masses. But when you're having your own YouTube channel, you get to decide what your show is about, what your content is about, and who your audience is. And your audience isn't limited to local because your audience is international and all over the world. So, so YouTube just gives me so much more freedom yeah. to do what I want to do. Does this mean I'm going to turn down TV if somebody comes knocking the door? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I learned a lot from TV and I think it, it gives me the reach um, to a different kind of audience. And I had a lot of fun being on TV, but I think ultimately if I had to choose one, it would a hundred percent be YouTube. Oh, that's, that's a great perspective. I never thought of it that way, but sure enough. And I'm not arguing with you. I'm really seeking to understand. You mentioned it's tough to break through. And in what way did you experience some of that? In the realm of food media, as a person of color is, is the biggest reason why this is an upstream battle for all okay. of us. Because, because again, as I said, TV is looking to please the masses. Because that's how they succeed, right? They can't niche down to a specific cuisine that most of America is not interested in. And so they are going to always look for somebody who can cater to the masses. So ethnic cuisines like Thai food is going to have a really hard time trying to convince them to give you airtime. Um, and and they want somebody to you know, to really be appeal to somebody in the Midwest and somebody, sure. you know, they don't want anything too quote unquote weird and not relatable. <laughs> so, so even to this day, even with all this talk about giving a chance to more creators of color and putting them more in the spotlight, it is still a battle in, in terms of TV. If you go yeah. on the internet, if you look at YouTube, that's a different story because people carve their own paths. The audience gets to choose who they want to listen to. If they want to learn about Thai food, they will go seek out a Thai person. They want to learn about Korean food, they'll go seek out a Korean person. They don't have to just sit and wait for whatever TV is going to give them. Fascinating. You're right. You're right on that. So your you know, Thai food and Thai recipes, we're going to talk about your new book here in a moment. Uh, to me, I look at Thai food as using your words, it's more niche and, mm-hmm. and, and, but look at what's happening is just remarkable on the market you're tapping into. So I applaud you for, for making that adjustment and look at what you're doing. Remarkable. Thank you. So now your book, Savai, brand new book, 100 simple Thai recipes for any day of the week. You've You've uh, published other successful books. What's different about this book? Why the title? Why now? So sabai is a Thai word that means to be at ease, comfortable, relaxed. That's sort of the spirit behind this book. I want people to be able to cook Thai food with ease because I know that when most people approach not just Thai cuisine, but any new cuisine that they've never cooked before. It's, you know, they're a little intimidated. They feel like it's complicated. It's a little bit of a project. So I wanted to provide a resource that has only recipes that have been pre-screened for simplicity. So that if you're looking to cook Thai food, anything in this book is going to be simple and straightforward. 
when you look for Thai recipes on the internet, even for my website or my YouTube channel, you go on there and it's not clear which one is going to be easy. You have to kind of look into it and like, oh, is this one easy? So I wanted to create a resource where you can grab this book, turn to any page, whatever looks good to you, you know that that's going to be doable on a weeknight. So I didn't have that sort of resource before online. And my first book was not a quick and easy book. So I felt like this is really needed. So I wrote this book also when I just became a mom and my son was just one at the time. And so I personally needed recipes that was quick and easy. So from a personal need standpoint, this was really the only book I could have written during that time. Yeah. For sure. How has your, and you may have just answered the question, but how has your cooking or your instruction evolved over time? And maybe even since you've become a mom, how has your instruction education shifted, if at all? I have definitely relaxed a little bit. So in the beginning, I was all about hardcore Thai recipes. I wanted to make sure that this is exactly as you'd find in Thailand. And I was able to seek out all these ingredients. And and my mission was really to, to make sure that people know what real Thai food is like in Thailand, because Thai food is very popular in the U.S., but, you know, there's a lot of modification that happens to tone it down a little bit to make sure, you know, the, the unfamiliar palate is pleased. Um, but then over the years, I've acknowledged that sometimes you just can't find the ingredients. Mm. And sometimes the traditional method is just, you know, not user-friendly in a Western home kitchen. So I've relaxed that a bit. I feel like I have established my authority enough that people are not going to question my quote-unquote authenticity, that now I can start showing people some shortcuts, some easier things, even some newer things that I've personally come up with, not a traditional dish. And and people really appreciate that, that, that I'm I'm not like a Thai food Nazi, you're going to like <laughs> punish you for using the wrong ingredient. It's like, hey, yeah. if you can't find this, this is what you use instead. And you know what? It's going to be fine. It's great. You know, I grew up with uh, Thai food in North America or North American Thai food. And what, what do you think I'm missing? Uh, and I really would love for you to describe for me, what is Thai cuisine like in the truest sense of the word? I don't think I know. So Thai food in North America compared to what you can find in Thailand in general is toned down in terms of boldness of flavors. Thai food has very strong flavors with lots of herbs, lots of spice. And, you know, when our food is sour, it is really sour. When it's yeah. spicy, it's really spicy. And there's lots of combination of sweet, salty, sour, and spicy flavors in all sorts of different ways. So I, a lot of people who are who grow up on a Western diet, when they go to Thailand and have Thai food for the first time, this is a phrase that comes up again and again, the way they describe it. It's like, it's an explosion of flavors that I've Ooh. never had before. Oh. Because like, it's sort of like we take flavor to, to a higher degree. And so when people have real Thai food for the first time in Thailand, they're like, whoa, like this is like so much flavor in my mouth. So Thai food in North America tends to be milder in all of those ways, because, um, you know, a lot of restaurants want to make sure that people are not so surprised that they are, you know, to ease them in a little bit. Um, 
And also a lot of places are limited by ingredients that they can't find. You know, if you've got a Thai restaurant in the Midwest, they probably don't have access to all the herbs and spices. And so they have to make do with what's available. So that really affects it too. But I think overall, um, Thai food in North America, just all the flavors are just not quite as strong, not quite as bold well, and much have- sweeter. For some yeah. reason, Thai food in North America is so sweet. Um, somehow people have thought that if they make it sweeter, it'll be maybe less spicy or more appetizing, but it, it really should not be as sweet as it tends to be here. Well, you have my attention because I, I love food. I, I love great food and there, there are times, and I could probably count them on, you know, one hand when I've been having a meal, uh, pie and I, I eat something and it's just this, like you said, this explosion of flavors I've never, never experienced before. And when it happens, I can remember it. It's unbelievable. And that's sounds like what you're describing. Yes, absolutely. What recipe should I try? I've got, maybe I'm bringing some people over. Uh, I'm going to like four people and I really want to have a great meal and uh, uh, try a recipe, which what's the one recipe you think I should give a, give a shot? Oh, the one. The one. So I'm, I'm going to assume that your guests are maybe new to Thai cooking as well. They so I'm going to easy. I'm going to suggest a recipe called Penang chicken curry. And I love suggesting curries for first timers because it's actually very easy and you've got a lot of time to taste and adjust and fix as needed. Stir fries happen quickly. So a lot of people they you know they're they're, they feel a little bit pressure to make a stir fry, but curry happens more slowly. So you can take your time, taste, add more things if you need to. And also um, the Penang chicken curry uses the most available protein, the boneless, skinless chicken breast. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of new ingredients that you're going to have to deal with. Let's not introduce an interesting protein as well. Let's use something you're really familiar with. Let's use chicken breast. Um, Most of the ingredients you find on there is going to be something you can find at any Asian grocery store, but also at the international aisle of some bigger bigger grocery stores would probably have a lot of these ingredients. And, And I think it also introduces the explosion of flavor that we talked about that um, that I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised by. The only thing I would recommend when making any Thai curry is when you're buying a Thai curry paste, make sure you pick a good brand. And yeah. by a good brand, I mean um, a brand that isn't made to be to be mild for the American palate. Okay. <laughs> you want you want one that sells in an Asian grocery store. Okay. Um, I do have a video on my YouTube channel all about, I did a taste test of five most available brands of Thai curry paste. So any of the top three is good, but if you're buying Thai curry paste from a an Asian store, you're good to go. If you're buying a Thai curry paste from like the international aisle, you're probably going to get a one that's a little bit milder and you may have to use a lot more of it to get the right flavor. Wonderful. I, I'm intrigued. I'm going to do it because you're, the way you're educating me, I could hear it. You, I uh, picked up some nutritional science there about the protein. I want Thai food to become 
just a regular thing that you cook, part of your regular rotation. Um, I think for many people, you know, you've got your comfort things that you go to again and again and again, and then it's probably something that you grew up with, something you're familiar with. But if you can start incorporating dishes from other cuisines and, and making that a part of your rotation, it'll just make dinner so much more interesting, so much more enjoyable. And if you've got kids, it's such a great skill, quote unquote, for them to be exposed to all of these different ingredients from all over the world. So they're they're growing up with a wider worldview of what food is all about and not just like this is what we eat in this part of the world. It's just yeah. a, another form of education for children as well. Great way to look at it. And the whole mm-hmm. family get involved in these recipes because they are so mm-hmm. simple. Exactly. Yeah. What is the best way to follow you and to stay in touch with everything that you're doing? I think you're doing a lot. So my YouTube channel, Pylin's Kitchen, is the place where I post my videos. You can connect with me there. Uh, my website, hottaikitchen.com, is where all of the recipes are. So if you're looking for recipes, head over to hottaikitchen.com. Actually, speaking of ingredients, on my website, there's also a map of Asian grocery stores all over the world. So if you want to cook Thai food and you don't know where to go, check out that map on my website. And these are locations that have been submitted by my viewers from all over the world. And, um, and also my Instagram is hot Thai kitchen and Facebook as well. So you can connect with me there also. Yeah, your Instagram is amazing. I love it. You're a great follow and your YouTube channel. If you're not subscribing yet, if you're one of the few people on the planet that aren't subscribed yet to it, <laughs> please, please do that. And I invite you to do that. And I think I saw you have 175 million views on your videos and counting, just a remarkable number. When the comments come in, especially in the area of nutrition and food, people get so passionate about these topics. And how do you handle negative comments? Because I don't know about for you, but I'll get one negative comment and it just messes with my mind. What have you learned over the years? How do you deal with the negative comments? Uh, It definitely takes practice. And when you start receiving comments from the public, it is going to be difficult. And I was in the same boat as you when I first started. It was like the one comment that's going to like stick with me all day, right? Right. Um, But over the years, what I have learned is this negative comments are not about me. It's about them. People who leave negative comments, there is something going on in their life that is causing them to feel like they need to be mean to other people. And, (laughs) And if you think about it, most comments are positive. Like I will go through comments and 95% of them are great comments. Thank you for sharing this. This is so great. You know, and then you get the one comment and you're letting that one comment just obliterate all the other positive comments that have come in. It's not fair, right? Like you have to to really step back and look at it in the big picture. Like that's one person, probably a troubled person, probably have some issues that this is not about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good advice. And if, if you become better on camera over the years, I think you're phenomenal on camera, but did you start <laughs> out just dialed in? Uh, no, um, but I have always been comfortable with public speaking. Okay. So I think that was something that I had an advantage in, but I have definitely learned over the years, um, sort of, you know, just, 
just a way of being on camera that I'm comfortable with. There was definitely a time where I felt like I was trying too hard. And then I have sort of relaxed a little bit now. So before, for example, I wanted to make sure that everything was perfect, you know, that I didn't make a mistake that not, you know, everything has to be just so. And then over the years, I thought, you know what, people make mistakes when you and doing anything, especially with cooking, you're going to forget something, you're going to, you know, spill something. And if that happens, it's fine. And I don't edit those out. I just, I just say, Oh, you know what, I totally forgot this. And so we're going to add this right now, but you should add it before. So, so just becoming more relaxed and less of a performance, um, definitely will help. It's good. Good. Our, our, our interview has been a classic example of that. Don't you think we've, Oh, a hundred percent in ourselves. Uh, it's uh, starting. Our, if someone wants to start their own YouTube channel, yes, it's too late. Pi, correct? It's twenty twenty three. No, you it's not. Two thousand nine. It's way too late. It's saturated. It's over. Right? What do you think? No, a hundred percent not. People have been saying YouTube saturated since two thousand and nine. Okay, it's really? like it's it's been the rhetoric for as long as I've been a YouTuber. Yet. Every year we see a breakout channel that started last year that, Mm. you know, became an overnight success or a channel that, that not quite an overnight night success. They've been doing it for a long time, but suddenly they reach a point where they really, really grew. And people have been saying it's too late, you know, seven years ago. I remember so distinctly somebody saying, well, you're so lucky you got in early because like you couldn't start it now. I'm like, are you kidding me? You see all the 19 year olds out there with million followers who are like 12, seven years ago? Like, come on. Like this is, this is people saying that, oh, you've missed the boat. This is not a boat. This is a building. It is here to stay and you can come in anytime. Love it. Yeah. Well, Pi, we're here at the I Dare You podcast, and I asked all my guests, what's your challenge for all of us? So what is your I Dare You challenge, Pi? What do you got? I think every one of us have something that we want to start, big or small. You want to start something. You want to start exercising. You want to start a YouTube channel. You want to start that Instagram account about your sewing passion, whatever it happens to be. Uh, my challenge for you is take one step towards making that happen. Um, Stop overthinking it and just start, just do one thing, maybe sign up for the account or, or go buy a thing that you need to make it happen. Because one of the things that I think I got lucky when I started my YouTube channel was I didn't have all these successful YouTubers to aspire to. So I didn't overthink it. I wanted to have a cooking show I saw a way of doing it and I did it. I didn't think, oh, how many people are going to watch? Am I going to be as good as that person? Like, what do I have to offer? I just, I didn't think about any of that. And I think, and I do understand that if you start today, you have too many examples to look at and it's very intimidating. So pretend like you've got no examples and just go and start a thing without overthinking it. Take one action that gets you closer to that starting point. Well, that's a mic drop. I dare you challenge. Thank you for that. <laughs> I love it. So, Pike, uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Your book is called Sabai, and you're doing cool things on your YouTube channel. 
And again, thank you for being here on this podcast and giving us some really keen insights in a lot of different areas. And you really made a difference and an impact here with all of us. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I love that interview with Pai. She was just a delight and so many insights shared about entrepreneurship and strategy and going after niche markets or underserved markets. So what do you think? Now that you listened, who are you going to share this episode with? Uh, I know you're thinking of somebody right now and I invite you to take that extra step and to share. Now make sure you follow us on Instagram at I Dare you Pod, and I would love to hear from you and get feedback on what's working for you about the episodes. Many of you already are corresponding with me, and uh, thank you. I enjoy it. So keep the feedback coming. Tag us on Instagram. Let's get the word out. So what was your biggest takeaway from the interview? You know, for me, as I reflect back on it, it has to be her story about how she wanted to be a Food Network star on TV, but she realized that being on YouTube gave her more flexibility and a bigger platform to tap into her passion and her mission to reach people all around the globe. There's always a different way. Sometimes the very thing that we want isn't that at all, but if we just pull up a bit and look a little bit further out or a little bit to the left or to the right, we can see something even bigger and better and something more in line with our passions and our purpose. So now everyone get ready for episode 64. I can't believe we're 64 episodes in. For some of you, this was your first episode. Uh, For others, you've been here for 63 and I thank you. So get ready next week, everyone. Another great guest coming your way. Thanks again for tuning in this week. And I'll see you next week on the I Dare You podcast.